Welcome to another episode of the Music History Project. Today we're talking World War II. Hey Dan, hey Mike. Hello. Hi Elizabeth. We're really excited today that you guys are tuning in because we are going to be talking about World War II and the connection to the music industry um, in honor of Pearl Harbor Remembrance Day. Absolutely. It gives us a great opportunity to dig in the archives and take a look at some of the folks that we've interviewed that spoke about the impact that the war had on the music products industry. Some folks who uh, played an active role in the war, and a little bit of history about how we came out of it. So a little bit of general brief background. I'm sure as our listeners, you guys have uh, at least a little bit of knowledge of World War II, but just in case, or in case if uh, you forgot today was December 7th, World War II started in 1939 and ended in 1945, but America entered on December 7th, 1941 with the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And so the allies were America, England, France, Russia, Soviet Union, Russia. Um, And the Axis powers were Germany, Italy, Japan, and uh, I mean, I guess you could say like Austria and stuff like that. Uh, And so we're going to be listening to a whole bunch of clips about people who entered the service during World War II, uh, came back from the service, opened up retail stores, worked in factories stateside here to support the war efforts, kind of a smattering of different experiences, which is pretty cool. And what's really neat to me is uh, we're going to start with uh, the music products industry's own Rosie the Riveter. Uh, This concept of so many soldiers being drafted and taken off to war left a lot of women to do their work in the factories. And uh, many of the music products industry um, manufacturers, uh, including Wurlitzer in DeKalb, Illinois, had to switch from producing musical instruments to helping with the war effort. And uh, Anna Sopolvich was there, and um, we're going to hear a little bit from her interview uh, about how she was given a riveter and asked to help uh, in the uh, assembly of uh, airplane parts. When I was just out of school and I went to work in the factory and they were making, uh, must have been during the war because the war started in, what, 43? Yeah, 42, 43. Something like that. And I remember making air, they changed over and made airplane wings. And I know that I had to um, glue them and then heat that glue. It was called high frequency, you know. And uh, it it was a simple job, but, you know, it still required quite a bit of perfection. Yeah. <laughs> My boss would always say, no, Anne. <laughs> <laughs> and you worked with all men, I think, right? Just about. Well, there was another lady. Her name was Anne also that worked on uh, uh, the high frequency. I mean, they called her Big Anne because she was a lot taller than I was. <laughs> <laughs> I was little Anne. <laughs> So it was it was a fun. I mean, we always had a good time, but we did our jobs. They had like the tuners were upstairs, uh, and they had like little booths, and they had girls working at that. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked down on the finishing on the first floor, and the, the piano. It's where you'd take stain and a little piece of felt and go around all the edges of the piano. And it was piecework. And uh, that was also where uh, they would repair any damaged spots to it. Now, I don't know what they called that. But I could remember they had to put a little filler in there, you know, and sand it out and everything. But uh, these pianos would come down on little dollies and we would, it was piecework. We had to do them and all the other people were guys, you know. There were some pretty good stories there. 
<laughs> these other guys, some of these other guys would come in drunk, you know, and they would get underneath on these dollies that the pianos are on and go to sleep. And when the boss would come around, hey, come on, Don, get up. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I'm lucky to survive that deal. <clears throat> but uh, like I say, you had to be one of the guys. Yeah. And I, I think they thought I was too. <laughs> Do you remember the name of your boss there? George Maslunas. Oh, yeah. I've heard his name. Yeah. yeah. And when I was on the airplane wings, it was um, George Comedina. Isn't that fascinating? I've always been so thrilled with the fact that we actually have our own Rosie the Riveter in our industry and have had the opportunity to document her story. Yeah, and I think beyond that, the idea, I think it's hard for a lot of us to make the connection that uh, other industries converted the products that they were manufacturing from Wurlitzer making organs to making airplane parts, airplane wings and things like that. I mean, you just don't see that happen today. Right, yeah. I think the the whole idea of it is definitely foreign to us, but um, it's cool to see that uh, music companies were involved with this process as well. Yeah, I'm very proud about that because they were very proud about that. That's the neat thing about gleaning these stories and archiving them as part of the oral history program. As so many of them proudly said, as you guys stated, that these industry leaders stopped everything they were doing because what was more important was to uh, help out with the war effort. So Steinway made uh, airplane wings. So did Baldwin in, in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. Our friends over in um, Elkhart, Indiana, stopped almost all production of um, brass instruments to help with a myriad of uh, products and uh, needed supplies for the war effort as well. So um, a very compelling time that really engaged many elements. Um, and then as a result, so many folks who have come out of the war, uh, who were lucky enough to come back home and uh, get back into the music industry, have stories to tell. And we've been able to document some of those, which leads into uh, George Lucas, who was uh, a past president of the NAM Board of Directors. Uh, he also had his own um, piano retail shop. And during the war, he had an experience playing the piano. And I thought this would be another great segment to play today. And maybe before we get into George real quick, we should comment on the fact that you know, women had a huge role during the war. And I think a lot of people assume that they were homemakers and things like that because there wasn't an opportunity to serve uh, overseas necessarily with the exception of the medical corps and, you know, army, navy nurses, things like that. But uh, when you talk to this, these generation of women that were working in the factories, growing victory gardens, things like that at home, they're extremely proud of it and they should be. And we're just starting to kind of embrace that history, I think, as a culture. And so good on it, Anna, and good on Dan to make sure that they documented her story because these are ones that are now being lost because this generation is no longer around, which I think is super cool. Yeah, definitely super cool. So George, let's hear from George, which I think he's got a really neat clip. When I went into the Army, uh, just this was just as the war was ending, 1945. And, um, of course, they were still dragging everybody into the Army, you know, so I enlisted so I wouldn't get drafted. That way I could pick out what I wanted to do. Uh, and um, uh, I was sent to um, uh, a training school at, uh, uh, in the Ozarks. And um, when I got out of there, uh, I was sent overseas. And the first day overseas, I was sitting in the service club, what else, playing the piano for the, for the guys. And the man walks up to me with a briefcase, and he said, can you read music? And I said, yes. And he pulls out this music and puts it in front of me, and I, I read it for him, you know. And he said, how would you like to be in special services and be assigned to USO as a pianist? And I said, gee, that sounds a lot better than what I was probably going to do, you know. <laughs> so uh, for the next 18 months, I toured with uh, USO. Oh. Just as the war ended, they were sending a lot of entertainers over to keep all the troops that were stuck over there, literally by their point system. And so for a year and a half, I was able to uh, 
uh, travel with a with a combo, and I I directed uh, the the band and the scores from the piano, and uh, that was my military career, you know. Wow, how fun! Did you enjoy that? Did you enjoy doing that? Oh yes, yeah, it was fun. And they, I, they wanted me to re-enlist. The warrant officer that I, I reported to wanted me to re-enlist for, for four years. And he says, look at, he says, uh, you, you'll become a chief warrant officer in, in three days after your enlistment. And he says, that's, that's the best thing you could possibly be in the service, you know. And I said, well, I don't know. I wanted to go on to school, you know, so. <laughs> That was the end of my military career, but my military career was almost totally spent traveling with USO. How did the USO work? There were big shows like the ones we're familiar with, Bob Hope and that sort of thing, and then they also supported these smaller Yeah, groups, right? well the big shows of course of all, are all you ever heard of. The only big star that I played with um, was um, Mickey Rooney, and that was for maybe four or five days and um, it, it was quite an experience because the, the, the guy did everything you know he sang he, he had a complete routine singing dancing played the drums played a little piano and uh, he was a, so almost a one-man show you know but he needed this band as a ba as a backup and I did travel with him for, for uh, a short period but um, what the government was doing there was they were they had a group called the CATS, Civilian Actress Technicians, and these were uh, USO people uh, that the government would pay $500 a month to as a salary, and of course pick up all their travel expenses and their meal expenses were uh, at Army bivouacs and in Army hotels and places like that. And uh, there were all kinds of them over there. There was um, probably in the um, year and a half that uh, I traveled that uh, probably had 60 different hmm. civilian actress technicians hmm. that were hired by, uh, actually they were hired by USO but paid by the government. They were all professional people, mostly from Broadway. Uh, uh, one of the, the guys that I traveled with for a long time was um, the uh, understudy to Ray Bolger. Hmm. And he had all of Ray Bolger's routines, looked like Ray Bolger, it wasn't as tall as Ray, uh, but he had that lanky, yeah. uh, scattered Rubber look, you know, that, that they do when they're tap dancing routines. Hmm. And it was uh, quite a thrill to uh, be able to meet Ray Bolger. We had him as a guest. Nam did had him as one of the featured guests at one of our uh, banquets uh, right? for uh, for a trade show, huh. and I got a chance to meet him and tell him that, uh, who I worked with. And he says, "Oh, I remember him. Is he still drinking?" <laughs> <laughs> Again, that was George Lucas, who served on the um, Nam board of directors as a, a president, um, and also had his own piano shop. It's really great to uh, hear these experiences firsthand as we're utilizing uh, the oral history program at NAM to celebrate uh, the, uh, the impact um, and all that came from uh, the music products industry during the war. Again, as Elizabeth pointed out, um, so many of these folks were really very proud of the role that they played. And we're gonna hear about that time and time again uh, as this podcast continues, so many folks uh, who play the role or different roles or who had uh, learned something that was able to help establish our industry after the war, which was very crucial. And we'll hear about that in a few minutes. But first, I thought it might be kind of fun to uh, play one of my favorite stories. Are you guys ready? Oh, is it the Herbert Newton clip? Yeah. Oh my God, this is a good one. I, I kind of laughed really hard when I listened to his web clip. It's a goodie. It's a <laughs> it is a goodie. <laughs> so Herb owned a uh, piano and organ shop. Uh, unfortunately, he's passed now, but this is uh, definitely on the top 10 of my favorite stories uh, from World War II. I remember one, one tuning incident that I, I, uh, stands out in my mind was during the, during the war, during the Second War. 
there was a, a Navy ship was in dry dock in Portsmouth, and the captain on the ship played the piano, and he had a piano in the bridge, on the bridge of the ship. It was fastened onto a big stanchion so that it would roll around the stanchion, but it wouldn't leave there. And uh, he had called me to tune it while I lugged my tools up five, six flights up to where the piano was and got there ready to tune it. And there was so much noise on board the ship, riveters and this and that, bang, 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 and so forth. And I said to the captain, I said, uh, Captain, you want me to tune this piano, but I can't hear it well enough. There's too much noise going on. He says, I guess you're right. Looked at me, went over to the telephone, he picked up the phone. He said, this is your captain speaking. Cease all work aboard ship immediately. <laughs> and in a few seconds you could hear a pinfall. <laughs> and I tuned that piano while all those workers were sitting on their tunes. I, tools, I don't know how much it cost the government, but he... I don't know whether he paid for it himself or not. <laughs> That's an expensive tuning job. That was an expensive tuning job, though. <laughs> Probably the most expensive I've ever done in the country. <laughs> Could you imagine going onto this huge Navy ship? Like, I, I picture like a destroyer or something like this. This is a massive thing. And we're lucky enough being here in Southern California to where if we make a day trip down to San Diego or something, or on select days when we can catch the view out on the ocean, we can see some of these big ships. So we kind of have a somewhat of an idea of how big and massive they could be. But uh, going on to one of those to fix and tune a piano, that's just, I, I don't know, that's insane, isn't it? Well, and have everybody stop their work. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so that he could hear the pinging. <laughs> I mean, I know they talk about on a lot of these big... Uh, carrier class ships in the fleet now that they're so big they're like floating cities these guys there's 2,000 people on them most of the guys and, and women live on board the ship 24 7 365 so it, it is its own almost independent functioning you know government and city so the fact that you could get that many people to just stop to be quiet <laughs> I, <ugh. laughs> so where are we off to next it looks like our next clip is going to be from Helga Kazimov? Yes. Helga and her son uh, run a music and piano shop up in the Los Angeles area. And um, this is interesting because as we progress on our podcast, one of our hopes was to show the depth of exactly the impact that the war had and then what people did in our industry to uh, combat that or to take those horrible situations and turn them into opportunities. Helga is certainly a great example of that. Uh, and we'll hear a little bit from her about uh, just the need for piano teachers and music teachers in her area and how she went from just a student of piano to having a career in the music industry. Yeah, and I think the great thing about uh, the inclusion of Helga's clip here is it really shows that this is a global cl uh, collection that she's going to give us our first perspective outside of the American perspective from World War II growing up and living in Germany during this time. And so it, it just showcases that our collection, the NAM Oral History Collection, is more than just American-based industry. We have multiple countries represented, uh, Germany and England and Japan, Australia. We just got a huge crop of stuff from Dan's recent trip to Australia. So don't feel like if you're looking for something else in the collection that it's it's limited to our nation. We can go beyond that and it's, it, I mean, it's huge. Do you, do you know how many countries off the top of your head? You have even no, a ballpark I, guess. I, I think we're close to 50. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. And I appreciate you bringing that up because uh, I remember very distinctly sitting uh, during an interview in Japan. And, you know, as an American, a proud American kid who went through U.S. history in the 11th grade, I heard that perspective. And my eyes started to water as a gentleman told me the story of uh, piano shops being bombed in Japan during World War II because uh, the Americans thought that there were propaganda machines and, and Xerox, well, before Xerox, uh, uh, duplicating machines of um, 
propaganda being produced in these uh, piano factories, so they were bombed. And I mean, it was an eye-opening experience, but something I'm very glad that we were able to document for this collection because as you say, it's really important to show all perspectives and that was an impact on our industry. Um, and I'm glad that that became part of what we now have as a resource. And if you'd like to see any of the videos that accompany the interviews that we are talking about in this podcast, you can head over to www.namnamm.org slash library, and we have the entire collection there. And we have a keyword tag called World War II, Mike. How, what's the easiest way for someone to get right to that tag? Let's see. There's two ways you could get to it. Um, you could scroll down the library page to advanced search, and that has a list of all of the tags. Or you could simply search any of the interviewees that we mention in this podcast, and they will have that tag, and you can just click on it. All right. So let's hear from Helga, who, again, just to refresh, uh, grew up in Germany and discusses her experiences living in Germany towards the end of the war. There was a shortage of teachers. I could not have finished high school in Germany because I was in five different schools after we were bombed out in different towns and the last school they never missed a day of learning because in the south they did not have the alarms, the air raid alarms. So uh, I just couldn't catch up ever with calculus and so they, I was lucky because we got a certificate when I was 17 years old. There was a need for teachers because so many teachers were killed during the war. And, uh, and so uh, we got that certificate and uh, most of the girls who left high school early with 17 years of age instead of 18 uh, went to become teachers. I went to a school uh, to become a parish worker and to teach religious education. And we had very fine teachers. They were professors from universities who had been expelled from Königsberg and Breslau from former German areas. So we had a very, very high standard of teachers. And uh, during that time, there was, we studied, we had a very fine teacher and organist who taught us church music, history of church music. That was my next encounter with music. And uh, I became very, very interested. I loved history, and this was uh, it. Very was very interesting. And then, uh, when I was, oh, I still went to opera in that small town. We did not have an orchestra performing, so I had never been really to a symphony orchestra in my life, and uh, only regular opera. And uh, I remember that the opera from Hamburg visited our little town, and there was famous opera singer, and the opera singers in this little wine town uh, had, <coughs> after uh, when they gave their bows at the end, uh, the lady singers received a bouquet, big bouquet of flowers, and the man got a big case of local champagne. <laughs> and I always thought that the men got more than the women. <laughs> so these were little things I could talk about. The uh, Helge Röstwinger was a singer there. We had first class people who came to, who traveled during that time. And uh, I heard on the French radio, I heard a lot of uh, Offenbach. They didn't have classical music on the French radios. We studied French every day we had French, and my French was very good then. But uh, I also listened to the American Forces Network from across the Rhine, and because the American zone was east of us. And uh, there they had a classical music program. Uh, Ruslan and Ludmila was the entry a song or piece of music there. But before that, they had an hour of Hill, uh, what is it, Hill, Hill Body, Gasthaus, Hill. Oh, Hillbilly? Hillbilly Gasthaus they had. And I thought, from the Grand Ole Opry in Nashville, Tennessee, and I thought that's American opera. 
and <laughs> I had my dictionary right next to my homework and whenever there was a word that I didn't understand I would still be able to look it up to see what it meant so I learned a lot of these hillbilly songs at the time and uh, I still like country music today and uh, let's see what else is there about music in the in the early years oh yes uh, when the American army came in uh, they had their they were there first before the French came and they had their uh, vehicles lined all along a street downhill our parent my parents house was uphill and when I walked by they had speakers on and there were some weird kind of sounds coming out and it went back and forth and I thought it was a code language that they had developed and only later on I found out that was jazz I had never been exposed to jazz in my life and when I tell that to jazz musicians they say well it is a code <laughs> you were right <laughs> One thing I always find super fascinating when you hear anyone's story, especially if they were based in Europe during this time, um, inside the music industry, outside the music industry, is this thought that realistically, when 45 rolled around, the conclusion of the, the war happened, there were no men left because, you know, almost an entire generation of uh, European men, especially German men, were nearly wiped out because of the efforts uh, during during the war and I just I find that fascinating because again we don't hopefully fingers crossed knock on wood we're never going to come across that situation again so it's so hard for us who didn't live through it to experience that and I think the fact that Helga touched on that is pretty captivating. Also it really paints the picture of how difficult it was for any industry let alone the music industry to continue and um as we progress into some interviews of folks who can now talk a little bit about the impact that the war had and how moving forward was difficult and challenging and some of the things that took place during that time, I think it's important uh, to note that it was um, even as difficult as just getting raw materials. And as um, Elizabeth pointed out, having the manpower to uh, create any product, especially those that took extra skill like piano building. And the other part of her, her interview, her web clip that I got a good chuckle out of was towards the end when she's talking about the arrival of the American army uh, into her town and them blasting music over like PA systems and speaker systems uh, for the American troops to hear as well as the locals to hear in her first experiencing hear, hearing jazz and when she thinks it's a secret code that they're sending out because she's never heard jazz in her life um, and I would think if you don't have a lot of exposure to jazz if you're a jab no, jazz novice that uh, that's probably a pretty accurate representation of your first experience with jazz music <laughs> yeah she's fantastic yeah so uh, Mike who's our next web clip from looks like we're going to hear from gordon fund yes silent p there if you're going to search it those always tricked me right (laughs) so gordon was also a piano retailer uh and uh, we're going to hear a little bit about now um picking up our uh selves after the war and moving forward after world war ii uh the the hammond organs were on ration you know and you, if you wanted to have an organ, you came in and you made a deposit, and a year or so later, they'd call you and say, your organ is in, and you owe us the balance, and that was it. And so for years, they were just used to uh, not having to do any promotion, just sit back and take the orders. Hmm. And so as a result, these Hammond Organ Studios grew all over the country, and that's where I got involved in it. And uh, so then I went to New Orleans to operate Whirlines, let me get that out of order. I went first to Chicago. I worked for Hal Lemke in the Hammond Organ Studios of Old Orchard, which was their model a studio. They bring dealers from all around the country into this shopping center where we had the Hammond Organ Studio, and the dealers would spend a week on the operation of how a Hammond Organ Studio should operate. Mm. And so uh, 
anyhow, that was uh, uh, a fun experience. Then I went back down to Houston, Texas to work for Don Holcomb at the end. He, by that time, had called himself, uh, he did, what did he call it? He was still Bel Air Music, I guess, at that time before he became Holcomb Lindquist. Then uh, I went from there to work for Philip Werlein at Werlein's in New Orleans mm. before I came north to Memphis. So I took, I took a, uh, Chicago to Houston to New Orleans to Memphis is the trip I took to. Uh, Did you um, find the markets different in those areas? Not that much. It was a matter of getting out and, uh, you know, we used to go, uh, I've got in my archive somewhere is where I played a filling store, uh, filling station opening, uh, grocery stores, uh, and the service clubs were great. Uh, venue for us. We, uh, with Bob Hazard, he'd do the narrative and I'd do the playing, and then we'd get somebody out of the audience. We'd get the club to nominate the stupidest guy in the club to come up and teach him how to play uh, a melody, and from that we got leads generated, which we went out that, that week and uh, uh, put home demos in and uh, sold lots and lots of organs. In fact, I'm trying to remember what year it was. In one December, I, I had done 33 Hammond chord organs. Back at that time, they were a thousand bucks a piece, and you know you could buy a new Ford for you know fifteen or eighteen hundred dollars. And so people were would be willing to spend on being able to uh, enjoy the uh, creating your own music. So that was my. Uh, I guess my reason to be in all of these things was getting people to play and enjoying music. So Gordon there is uh, painting the picture of um, trying to uh, develop a industry after World War II, and it was not easy. And uh, one of the uh, the heroes in this building here at the NAM headquarters in Carlsbad is uh, Bill Gard, who was our CFO at the time. And he had many obstacles in bringing NAM back to life. Uh, we had closed for several years, did not have a trade show, and closed all operations during that time. And Bill sort of single-handedly um, brought the industry back together, uh, saw the importance of having a trade show again, and um, also was very active in the beginning of the American Music Conference, which is now the NAM Foundation, to establish music education programs as well as uh, programs that help GIs uh, learn the craft of um, everything from running a retail shop to uh, band instrument repair. So very critical moments for all of us were taking place uh, at this time. And over in Germany, there were also some amazing things happening. We have here in the, uh, the NAM Resource Center archived a, a wonderful story about uh, the town of Butenroid. And Mike, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, uh, that vignette that's available and where they can find it. Yeah, so uh, we created a vignette all about the history of the luthiers in Butenroid. And if you head on to nam.org, on the library page, um, scroll right to the bottom. There's a section called vignettes. We have a few posted there. I believe it's the at uh, the time of this recording. We have a music store vignette there and a piano sticker vignette. But the Butenroid one um, is very interesting. Um, it, it talks about the entire story of luthiers coming to Butenroid and um, just really the history of that area and personally i found it amazing super interesting and um yeah it's definitely worth a watch so one of the folks that's uh highlighted in that uh, vignette that mike was talking about is um walter hoyer whose uh, father started the hoyer guitar company and uh in this clip from his interview back in 2011 uh walter talks a little bit about his memories of that experience after the war we come out to Bavaria. My father was the first man here in, in Bavaria. In this time, the American soldiers was in Czechoslovakia. And then they split off where gets this part and this part. 
and we go then with the Americans because Czechoslovakia used to get for the Russian. And with the Americans we go out here to Erlangen and start in Tenenloh. 19th war was over in May and August we was already here. Really? Wow. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people, they, after the war coming out here, they go all through our uh, workshop where we start. We had a big room, the half was where we live and another part we worked. And all the, the this men were coming out, they worked for a while and after then they go to Germany and find another place. So we had uh, always wie ein Flüchtlingslager. Refugee camp, ah, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You were a boy, do you remember that time? Yeah, I was six years old. I born in 38. I remember a little bit, but not very much. But then after a, a quite of time, of course, I was at school and after school I learned a trade to make instruments with, with Mr. Hannebach, he was here, he worked in our, in, in this camp also, yeah. Is that right? We had a good contact together, yeah. I was surprised that he remembered me. <laughs> so one thing that they talked, that Walter talks about in his web clip that um, I didn't know if you knew just from sitting down longer with him, Dan or not, is he discussed this idea of <clears throat> after the war, people were coming essentially to the shop and working for a short time period before moving on as they're trying to resettle, kind of find a new home, um, rebuild the area, everything like that. And he called it, uh, sort of a refugee camp, which I think is a correct term. Would you say people were coming to the shop because there was work or they were just passing through and there was a demand and a need for the for workers, therefore the Hoyer family went out and kind of recruited? Or Yeah, that's really interesting. I think it was a combination of both things. And um, one of the amazing stories of our industry is this concept that um, all these refugees after World War II had to leave the Sudetenland and return back uh, to mostly Germany. And in order to do that, they passed through Butenroid. So um, the, the mayor was soliciting as many um, musical instrument uh, makers as he could to live there and they actually built special housing for which I saw when I visited several years ago um, that's still there and that those buildings were utilized not only for those who wound up living there permanently but also for those folks that you referred to Elizabeth uh, just passing through you know taking a few days uh, maybe to collect some money uh, do a little bit of odd jobs and so on and then uh, move their family back further north uh, to their original homeland. And the other thing to mention is that if you ever m make it out there to Brutenroid and you happen to go to the visitor center, you would be excited to see our vignette featured there. We were very honored to have the town officials contact us and ask permission to utilize our vignette. I just think that's so cool that something we made here at NAM has an impact across the globe in reality and help tell that story i think yeah. absolutely it's really really uh an important story and there are several of those i i wish we could get to all of the ones that we've collected from world war ii but i've promised myself that we will do this again um <laughs> but uh the focus really for the rest of the podcast is talking a little bit about some of the folks who firsthand were there as uh, the music products industry was trying to rebuild after the war. Uh, we'll hear now from Bob Knight, who um, will talk a little bit about really the importance of um, bringing education and um, some stability to the industry, which a group of people uh, worked very diligently on. 
I know it's a little bit before your time, but what were you told about what the industry went through during World War II? Well, I uh, coming in into the industry right after it, I could see the results uh, in the warehouse. There was very little product available for the general music store. And the general music store that I was acquainted with, uh, let's say in the, early, the late 40, 49 and 50, they, had, they were selling other products. They were selling statuettes, you know. Oh, yeah. They were <laughs> and uh, Here, bring your legs towards me a little bit if you don't uh -huh. Perfect. And uh, I remember is that uh, I unloaded a humongous amount of model airplane kits that Continental Music was selling. Really? For the kids, you know, through the music stores. And I sold them to a department store on Market Street in San Francisco. The name of the store was Weinstein's. And I sold him several hundred, everything that we had left at a ridiculous price just to get rid of them because we began to get musical products back in. And the guy that bought it got fired later on because the kids found out that it wasn't balsa wood, it was pine. And the kids wouldn't buy it. <laughs> and I, I can remember that uh, the first shipment of Honer harmonicas that we got in, which was around 1950, they came in by boat of all things, uh, and it was a huge thing, you know, and it was several thousand dollars, but you have to remember, a Marine Band harmonica back then sold for 25 cents, and you're talking about thousands of dollars, they were gone in one day. No kidding. Yeah. I mean, my commission check back then, every, every month I could have bought a home in San Francisco. And I did. Um, we lived in the Sunset District in San Francisco. It wasn't much of a house, but back then that was it. <laughs> So, but there was very few products, there was very few pianos. Uh, at that time, everything circulated around used instruments. But everything was wearing out. I mean, the, the schools, all of their horns had deteriorated, you know. And I can tell you of a place in Stockton that the dealer, which was Bill's Music Sales, Bill Magellan, he was a repairman and he became a con dealer, and he was selling so much background horns to the school district, you know, sousaphones, French horns, baritones, that he had no place to put them. The used stuff that he was taking in on trade, he was a repairman too, and, and he, he wanted the parts. Uh, the metal didn't have any salvage value because it was so cheap. He purchased a house next door, an old house next door to his shop and when they demolished it, they excavated a big hole and they buried hundreds of horns and paved it over as a parking lot. And this is going to be open to the general public, so I, I really don't want to tell you where it's at <laughs> because you might get a lot of people involved. But believe it or not, those horns are still there. It's still a parking lot. That's fantastic. And uh, <laughs> uh, I can, <laughs> you talk about oddball th things that happened. I had one account, which was Maytan Music in Reno, and I secured a purchase order for him. For and when I got the order, it, it called for 12 C1BK bases. I'll never forget the number, and it was two and a quarter. So we filled the order for a dozen string basses. When the basses arrived in Reno, and the dealer sent them out to the military base, they wanted 12 base bridges, which retailed at two and a quarter. 
that was the biggest mistake I've ever seen. And uh, nobody thought anything about it because there hadn't been any product for years, you know. Mm. So, uh, <laughs> like I said, they, there was a lot of incidents, you know. Uh, Fender, I knew Leo Fender, you know. I had an opportunity to buy into it, which I looked at this plank guitar and I told Harold Driver, which was a friend of mine traveling, that uh, I wasn't going to buy anything that was a plank. I mean, I was from Tennessee. I was used to Gibson. <laughs> so Bob Knight has probably one of my favorite stories from this podcast, and it's kind of buried in his web clip a little bit, uh, when he talks about how there was a shop in the Bay Area buying and selling used horns, and they were essentially purchasing the used horns with the idea of to strip them for parts, to part them out to do repairs, and then the everything that was left after they salvaged all the parts they could was tossed aside. But there was no recycling plant, there was no refurbishment beyond that, and so they just buried a whole bunch in a, fe- in a lot <laughs> that got paved over then. <laughs> and so if you can find that random parking lot, and at the time of the interview back in 2014, so not that long ago, he claimed that that lot was still undeveloped, um, which is probably the hardest thing to believe. Uh, and <laughs> so I'm curious, I want to, you know, figure out where it is and go excavate and see if we can find, like, I just picture a hole with hundreds and hundreds of piecemealed Jeez. horns. <laughs> yeah, right. It's the good old days back when you could just bury things just and forget throw, about it. Throw things away. No big deal. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, and the other part about Bob Knight's web clip that I found fascinating is he touched on it just at the end when he was mentioned that he had worked or had come into contact with Leo Fender and had looked at some of his early guitars, which hopefully you listened two weeks ago when we had our Working with Leo podcast. And uh, I found it interesting that he looked at it, the new guitar shape, and said, mm, doesn't work for me. I don't want to carry it. <laughs> wah, wah. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if that's his biggest regret. That was his biggest regret in life is passing on that. But uh I found that interesting, too, just how quickly it all ties together as we do these podcasts and we prep and move from one topic to another, but yet it's all interwoven yes, back to each other. Neat? I know. I love that. Yeah. That's I think, absolutely true. I think by the end of this podcast, if there ever is an end, um, it's just all going to come completely full circle, which is going to be a an interesting feeling, definitely for you, Dan. Mm. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. You know, one of the things that... Um, is often spoken about uh, immediately following the war uh, here in the States is so many of the soldiers who were musicians who, of course, before then were enjoying the the great big band era, uh, traveling around on buses and playing in one of 750, I think at one count, uh, big bands that were traveling in the States. Uh, We're talking about Benny Goodman and, and Woody Herman and folks like that. Well, after the war, there weren't as many uh, bands. Uh, Economics really killed the big band era because a lot of those kids who were willing to play and basically for food money were now falling in love and returning after a war, wanting to settle down and actually earn some money. And uh, that made it more difficult. Uh, Of course, that was one of many changes that brought on the end of the big bands. So these kids were coming back um, and looking at their horns and saying, well, if I can't play it professionally, what can I do? Well, I could teach and, well, I could sell it. I know more about this than anybody else I know. So, well, I opened a music store. So um, there was a huge, huge surge of music stores opening up all across the United States uh, in the months and years following the war. Uh, And several of them were already having troubles just a few months in to the point where Nam created a uh, pamphlet that we have in our archives here that was teaching uh, soldiers to run a music store. And it was very funny, uh, quick little bullet points of basic things, but things that musicians don't necessarily think about when opening a business. And of course, I know Mike's heard this his whole life. You know, there's an awful lot of people in this industry who aren't necessarily business savvy because of their passion. That's why they're in it. But you learn very quickly, don't you? Yes, definitely. Especially if you're 
extremely passionate about music, you'll do anything you can just to stay open. And that's exactly the passion I think that so many of those soldiers had when they opened their stores across the country. Um, and so we're going to hear from a couple of these folks. Um, who's up next? Looks like we have Joe Campana Yeah, up next. He had a store up in the San Francisco Bay Area that he opened in 1947. So let's hear a little bit about his story. In 47, I wanted to open a music store because I started teaching the accordion on the side. And we used to come out here on weekends looking at areas. And it was after the war, and uh, I really wanted to open up in Walnut Creek. But there was a music store there, and there was no empty stores. The government had complete control of building materials. So one empty, empty buildings. You couldn't, you couldn't buy a, buy lumber if you wanted to, unless you went to the government. Government. So then I happened to find a store here in Lafayette, in '47, and uh, started the store, and uh, started. And I lived in Albany and uh, was used to get up at 6:30 in the morning and drive out here, and uh, start teaching at seven o'clock because kids would come in for lessons and I would stay here till 11.30 at night. For seven years, we were struggling, my wife and I. Didn't go out on a weekend for a sandwich, <laughs> you know? So it was tough going. So uh, that's behind me, thank goodness, and my wife was a big help. She used to come in those seven years on weekends and after school. So. Uh, then we started going through, we went through uh, Charlie Moore, which was one of the old timers of San Francisco in the wholesale business. And I went to see him one day and says, Charlie, I want to buy some accordions. Said, yeah. He says, uh, what kind of a store do you have? I said, I don't have a store. He says, we can't sell you accordions. He says, we've got to have a storefront because you're not good competition for people that have a business. So okay. So he says, I'll get a store. <laughs> So then, uh, got, then we started renting accordions. Colombo was in Oakland and San Francisco. We used to rent it temporarily. And uh, then uh, got buying my own, and the lessons were good. The accordion lessons were there, were great then. That was uh, in 47 when they started. Then after that, we used to push about 70 to 90, when the good business got good, 70 to 90 students a week. Yeah, yeah. Wow. That's why I say that's why I'd stay up here till, and I pay off my loan, you know, struggling and keep the ball rolling. I think it's pretty admirable that these uh, young men, realistically kids, probably when they left for the war, uh, drafted, you know, late teen years, early twenties, um, were able to leave as as kids, experience this traumatic series of traumatic events for the most part with the experiences of war and then come back in so many of them whether it was in the music industry or something else then gained a skill found a career and were extremely successful I mean you don't really call them the greatest generation for nothing so uh shout out to to all of our World War II vets out there hopefully listening um and congratulations you guys on being so successful throughout your lives it's something that I think uh generations that have followed have struggled to fill your shoes Definitely inspirational. And speaking of inspirational, another music retailer that I was so proud to have interviewed uh, back in 2006 is Don Wilson. Um, and here's a really interesting point that he brings up that has basically uh, been the cornerstone of a, a whole segment of the music products industry, and that is the band instrument repair folks who have established their own organization, Napert and have also worked very diligently on continuing education, providing school training uh, for future band instrument repair folks. And what's really neat is that's it really kind of all started, uh, as uh, Don will tell us, when the uh, Con, CG Con Company in Elkhart, Indiana, created a, um, a program, a training course, uh, over several weeks uh, for soldiers. If you served during the war, you could come to Elkhart for free and they would teach you. And then off you went to back home to wherever that might be. And 
I can't tell you, at least a dozen folks I interviewed started their music stores right after being trained by the CG Con company. So it was a really important thing uh, for our industry. And as I say, I think it really helped establish not only Nappert and some other musical uh, educational programs for band instrument repair, uh, but it certainly uh, fueled the uh, the um, the careers of so many of these retailers, including uh, Don Wilson. The Army at that time decided to have one man out of each band uh, go to Army Repair School for Musical Instruments because when they got overseas, uh, if there's something happened to their instrument, they were out of, out of whack. So this was good, but they should have started it before, <laughs> long before that. So I went from my band. So I went through an Army repair school at Camp Lee, Virginia, before I got out of the service. So I was contacted by, and went to the con repair school the, a month after I got out of the service and was at the con factory for n nine months re learning how to repair instruments. Was that the one in Elkhart? Elkhart. Elkhart, Indiana. What year was that? Well, that, I got out uh, 1945. Hmm. I went in 40 at uh, November the 25th, 1940. I got out the first day of November 1945, like 25 days being in five years. Wow. And the first of January 46, just uh, I started at uh, the con uh, repair school in El Elkhart. What was the repair school in the army like? Was it pretty, it was pretty pr good? Yes, it was pretty good. Uh, <laughs> very, very. Various instruments? Yes. All? Uh, there were no violins, but uh, like uh, uh, brass and uh, woodwinds. And mm. I was given a bugle all dented <laughs> uh, up and I handed it back in perfect shape. And I knew I could do it. Once again, we learned uh, another story from Don there about someone learning a trade through their service to our nation, and I think that's great. And um, I think people often forget that even today, bands, Army bands, Navy bands, Marine Corps bands, Air Force bands all have a huge role in today's military. We often just picture them marching at parades with, you know, the big bass drums and tubas and performing marches, but there's so much more than that. And I definitely encourage if you live near a large uh, military complex or installation to see their offerings, because I know when I was living up in the Northwest, the Navy region Northwest had a traditional marching band, but then they also had a woodwinds ensemble that was extremely talented, as well as a rock band um, that would do like journey covers and ACDC and nice. they were a riot. They were really cool. And uh, it's just a unique perspective if you can experience military bands in a different format other than just at your 4th of July parade or uh, Veterans Day playing taps or something like that. So it's cool that the Army and other branches of services have still incorporated that element into service. So we have two web clips next, uh, or left. So the first one is Brian Justice, who Dan interviewed back in 2008. <clears throat> Excuse me, who uh, I want to say, if I remember correctly, Dan, is based out of England, out of the UK. Right, and then he lived in Germany for a long time. And, and Brian really plays a very important role because he was embracing the, the German music instru instrument uh, industry immediately after the war, which, of course, as you can probably um, uh, feel, that not necessarily um, strong uh, excitement that the Americans had towards doing business with that 
country immediately following the war. But Brian saw that they could produce and wound up producing some very important instruments and as a result began working very diligently over the next 20 years of his career to help build those bridges and create those relationships. And um, many, many people have cited Brian as an inspiration to their own careers in Europe, and it was a real pleasure to uh, interview him. We lost him just earlier this year in 2017, so uh, I'd like to dedicate this uh, clip to the great uh, Brian Justice. And just so you're aware, excuse me, if you're not familiar with the history, the general history, you're going to hear Brian refer to Germany as East and West Germany. When the war ended, the country uh, was split in half with the East being controlled by the Soviet Union, the Russians uh, falling under communist rule, while West Germany was controlled by or influenced by more of an American ideal of uh, the free capitalistic society. So that's why you're going to hear it being referred to as kind of two separate nations. The East German music instrument industry went back to the 17th century. And many of the names in America were originated in that part of Germany. And the West of Germany, which was developing after the war, was originally all those people in the East. They went West very quickly and they developed their industry in Bubenreuth and places like that. So we developed and worked with uh, manufacturers here and we made a contribution by making parts for them and they made a contribution by selling us parts and so the whole thing developed. So we developed a very strong business in brass, string instruments because we had historical old, old quality instruments, bows, violins, cellos, and we also had the big school instrument business and lots of recorders, and so it went on. And then we visited the Frankfurt Fair, we had a stand there, the East Germans had a stand, and they traded under the name of Demusa. Now Demusa was one of those words that the Germans are so good at, which is Deutsche Musikinstrumenten Außenhandel und Spielwarengesellschaft, which meant music instruments and toys. And they were the export organization. And we represented the, inter- uh, the interest of the music in, in Great Britain and this part of Europe. Mm. At that time I met Americans who also were in the Frankfurt Fair, and they came to start looking at instruments from East Germany because again the old contacts were there, the names were familiar and some of the people in the 60s were still alive from before the war and they remember that their father did this and their father did that. If you, uh, St. Louis Music is an example because St. Louis Music, um, they came originally from I think it was Lithuania. So it's all part of the European musical instrument industry. So that's how we got involved, and that's how I got involved. Again, that was Brian Justice, and I think that's such an important story to tell. I'm really glad we have documented that as part of the NAM Oral History Program. Mike, who's last? Last, but definitely not least, is Bob Kane. And we just recently learned that uh, we lost Bob Kane earlier this year, correct? Yeah, Bob passed away in... uh, uh, August of uh, 2017, and uh, he was a really important uh, sales representative for the Selmer Band Instrument Company in Elkhart, Indiana. And what I love about this web clip is uh, the idea that they didn't really need a sales department. He didn't want to say that too loudly because he was sort of managing it. But for the first 10 or so years after the war, the instruments were just flying off the shelves. Uh, there was such a uh, interest in school band instrument programs all around the nation. There were a lot of uh, out-of-work uh, musicians after the war who were looking to be band instrument teachers in high schools and junior high schools all throughout the country, that there was a huge surge in the need of these instruments. Uh, and about uh, 16 years later, he remembers sitting down and having his first real meeting where they thought, well, gosh, now we actually have to do something to try to sell these things. So I, I love this. I think it's a great positive way of, uh, of ending this podcast. Uh, so let's hear from Bob. Go back to 1947. Uh, there had only been a couple of years of production. There was a 
tremendous demand for uh, product, and I, you know, all the companies uh, were selling everything they could make for the first few years after the war. Um, we, uh, I can't remember the date, but I was back in Elkhart by that time, so it was 13, 13, 14 years after, sort of in 19, 47, 50, it'd be close to the, close to 1960, when uh, three or four of us involved with sales sat down one day in our, one of our planning meetings and for the first time had to figure out how we were going to sell product. Mm. Up to that point, it was how we were going to get enough of it to supply the demand. So it was a great ride while we were doing it. Uh, and the resonite clarinet, uh, which we introduced during those years, um, again, we were selling them as fast as we could, we could faster than we could produce them. And uh, it, that, the resonite clarinet played a very important part in building the Selmer Company to what it became. And why, and why was that? Because of its success. Was a, a, a a good instrument, a, a it was a good instrument price. at a good price. It was introduced uh, in 1945 or six, six I think, and uh, was introduced at $125. And I don't remember, but I don't believe that price changed uh, probably for 15 years. I don't think there's anything else during that period of time that someone could say that about. Uh, but, uh, anything, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know of anything. Yeah, yeah. But uh, uh, it, you know, the the growth of the of the product really made it possible that we could uh, keep the price where we originally set it. And Bill Ludwig. I got to know, we of course bought the Ludwig Drum Company in just a few years before I left. I got to know Bill, he was a great guy. A lot of great people in the music industry, as you well know. Once again, that was Bob Kane, and that wraps it up for our podcast on the music industry during and after World War II. Yeah, we were really excited to be able to release this today on uh Pearl Harbor Remembrance Day, and we just think it's a really great story to tell. It showcases the collection and that, you know, it's the effect and the impact that music and the music products industry has on almost every part of our lives. So I think that's really great, and I'm really glad that Dan did the work to collect all these stories from these individuals. And I really appreciate your insight, Elizabeth. Um, I think it's a great opportunity for us to thank all of our veterans uh, for their service to our country. And um, we're looking forward to documenting more of these stories in the future. And just remember, if you have any suggestions for future episodes or you have, uh, you know, someone in your life that should be a part of our collection that maybe we haven't gotten to yet, make sure you drop us a line at library at nam.org and we will get back to you because we're excited to hear your feedback.